Okay, so we're starting 2 Samuel today. Remember we said in the past, like 1 Samuel, I think it was maybe the last couple of weeks or two, maybe this last week, we just said, you know, it does feel a little bit like a false start. Uh, the, the people wanted the monarchy to begin. Uh, that wasn't a wrong thing. God had talked about that. And yet uh, Saul's kingship was uh, immediately uh, troublesome. And so um, if, if really, if you're the first 14 chapters of First Samuel, as you're kind of seeing that unpacked, you're just like, you've got to be kidding me, you know. But the people got what they wanted. They got the king they wanted. And uh, when you get to chapter 15, you see Saul is rejected. Chapter 16, David is anointed. And although Saul continues to reign during that, you know, all of First Samuel, uh, it's, it's, you can see his reign fading, and David's kind of uh, the center point there. So he, it's like David, I mean, Saul becomes king and you just see his decline. And you're watching David kind of grow in his uh, place within the kingdom and, and things of that nature. And so uh, just remember about David, even though we're going to see some things about him that we're like, he's not the one, he's not like the savior of the world, he's not going to uh, do uh, what needs to be done in order for the kingdom to fully come and to be realized and all those things. Uh, he is a man after God's own heart. He is God's choice and his, his uh, line will last forever as God said that it would. And so uh, we just kind of have to, to see that as we're moving forward uh, in, in, this, in this book. Uh, an author with the last name of Davis, I can't think of his first name right now, he breaks Second Samuel down in this way. Chapters 1 through 8, a man after God's heart. Chapters 9 through 20, a servant under God's rod. Chapters 21 through 24, a kingdom in God's hands. So I think that maybe could be helpful for you. A man after God's heart, a servant under God's rod, a kingdom in God's hands, and that's kind of the way he would frame out Second Samuel. Another thing that he mentions, I, I think it's helpful, and I'll, I'll cite him a lot because he helps me think about how to, to bring things together oftentimes. He has through the first and second Samuel study, but he says, you know, there's a danger in reading like narrative, biblical narrative, like this, in a people magazine kind of way. Or you just see the headlines and you're like, that David, I really like David. Isn't he cute? Did you hear what happened with him? Oh, man, David, I can't believe this. Why'd you do this? You know, and you, you would just have all these snapshots of David's life and be like, you know, I kind of like studying about David. But he says, Second Samuel is not about David. It is not even about covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes a covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. When you read narrative in the Bible, you know that there's a story behind the story. And uh, as you reflect on God's commitment to his people, you're watching that unfold. It's kind of like, and I, I'm telling you, some of the biblical stories are just amazing. But like, I remember the first time that I realized that Joseph's story wasn't just about a guy that goes from the prison to the palace and you're just like, this is a blockbuster hit. It's not, 
It's not just that. But that it is all about the preservation of the promise. That's why Joseph's life exists. He's preserving the people of God. He is preserving the promise of God. And so we always have to kind of shake ourselves a little bit and say, like, I know I like the story. And you should. But see what the, what the greater story is that's being communicated. We just have to kind of remember that. Okay, so this morning, looking at Second Samuel, uh, Samuel 1, 1 through 16, uh, you see an Amalekite, you see David and his men, and that's kind of the main characters uh, there uh, on display, particularly the Amalekite and David are, are, you know, who we see actually talking in this, this uh, narrative. So just kind of remember that. Um, just as a quick note, if you haven't, you know, you just read it, but we're going to, I just want you to kind of put this in your mind. David has just finished striking down the Amalekites when an Amalekite shows up from the camp of Israel in a separate battle. And uh, he tells David that Israel has been defeated and that Saul and Jonathan have been killed. And then he says, uh, and actually, I killed Saul. And he asked me to. Then David mourns. Then David executes him. I mean, that's kind of the basic premise of what is taking place. Now, when we look at this text today, again, I would probably not have pulled this out, but I thought it was so good that I think it's, it's helpful. I've arranged it maybe a little bit differently in the wording, but uh, that author Davis kind of explains it in this way. You, you really see principles of the kingdom here. And uh, one is, and principle one you'll see is like falsehood is exposed. And we're going to go over these so you don't have to. But two is grief is urgent. Three is fear prophets. Those three things are kind of, they're principles in the kingdom. Uh, it, sometimes like you're, you kind of think like, what is the kingdom like or what, what should it be like? Um, and, and, and there are particular passages that kind of highlight that. And so uh, we pick those principles up and say, that's what that's like. Sometimes it's hard for us to get it in our minds. What's that like? What does that look like? Sometimes you say, I don't really have a road map, and I would say, look, I can't tell you exactly, like, I can't say at 300 steps, take a right, and then take 10 more steps, and take a left, and then, uh, it's not that clear, but I can say these principles will guide you to understand, like, kingdom life, kind of. It maybe would be a good way to say that. And so we'll look at those and nail them down. We'll start with the first one. Uh, falsehood is exposed in the kingdom. Second uh, Samuel chapter one verses one and two. Um, if you'll just note this real quick, you remember uh, in First Samuel, and if you if you were reading, um, if we were just to to read this in the way that uh, it kind of should be read holistically, you would read First and Second Samuel together. As one book, they're divided, uh, but 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 they're really not. They're, they need to 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 not read Second Samuel after you've read First Samuel. It's like reading half of the book, kind of. Is the way I'd say that. So in Second Samuel, when we start there, we just have to remember what happened in First Samuel. So just glance back, First Samuel thirty-one verses three through seven. They're pressing on Saul. He knows. I mean, he, he knows he's about to die anyway. I'm not sure he believed that until the very end. 
and they're coming after him. Saul asked his armor bearer, kill me. His armor bearer says, I can't do it. And so Saul falls on his sword. His armor bearer uh, in, follows his path. He falls on his sword and both die. That, that's what the narrator says. That's what he tells us. He says, let me tell you how Saul died. And this is how he died. Well, when you get to 2 Samuel, um, you have this man claiming that he killed Saul. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why would he do that? What's he doing? Why does he want to say something like that? Um, one thing we just say is, um, it is clear that you put the word of the narrator against the word of this Amalekite, and you say, mm, the narrator is the one that's telling the truth. So we're dealing with a liar here, and um, this is a liar that has traveled a long way, 80 plus miles, so that he can be the first to give the news. That's kind of the, the idea that you're getting here, and really, along the way, potentially, as he's going, he is concocting a story that he would think would ensure that like he has the greatest place in the kingdom, like the greatest non-Jew place in the kingdom. That he could be the right, on the right side of the king. That might be uh, his mindset here. He wanted a place in the kingdom. He's an opportunist. He says, look, I took the life of Saul. I mean, I, I, I was merciful to him. I gave him a good death. That would be, you know, kind of thing that would be, you know, it's like uh, he wanted to die nobly. Like, I did it. You know, David, like, well, what you want to do? What do you want to do for me now? I mean, that's kind of the, anyway, that's kind of the way I would see that. Verse 3, so, um, Verse 3, as you're moving forward, David is going to ask him questions. Now, if I'm reading the text, and I, if I were marking this text up and thinking about it, I would highlight every question in this text. And, and I'll tell you why even more so later. But where do you come from is the first question from David. David uh, he tells David from the camp of Israel. Uh, the second question, how did it go? The people fled. Saul and Jonathan are dead. Question 3, how do you know this? He said, I happened upon Saul. This is what was taking place. He asked me, give him like a, a respectable death. I, you know, did, did that. And then I took his crown and his armlet and brought it to you. I traveled these 80 miles several nights without, you know, barely sleeping to come and bring this news to you. So. Another thing I think just to note about this, and when you're thinking about it, is um, that, that reiterates like what this Amalekite has done. David has had opportunity. Well, let's go back even further. The reason Saul's like, kingdom was rejected was because he did not do to the Amalekites what God said to do to them. Secondly, in the situation that we're in, Saul had... I mean, David had many opportunities to take Saul's life, and he didn't. And so when you're looking at this situation, these should kind of bring red flags up. 
So David, you kind of think, he sees him as a murderer. We, reading the narrator's comments, can see him as a liar. But either way, the text exposes us to this. It very clearly exposes us to what's going on. I used to, uh, when I was in high school, I worked at Patterson's Camera Shop. It was before the iPhone. When people actually used, like, cameras. Like, you put them around your neck, and, you know. I, but I, I was, uh, I, I worked there, and, and uh, my dad had always been, uh, he is a photographer. He had always been doing that kind of stuff. And I had a friend that kind of said, hey, I know your dad does a lot of photography. Won't you be great at working at a camera shop? And I was like, uh, sure, you know. I mean, I'd watched, I had stood on the other side of the camera my whole life you know, but um, anyway, so one of the things that would happen is sometimes somebody would come in and say, I'm not getting anything on the film. This was, again, they were using a regular um, SLR camera, and what it does is as a shutter, and, and what happens is that shutter opens and allows for light to come in and expose the film. If it's not opening properly, that's a problem, right? When, when you're looking at this text, it's almost as if the writer here is exposing to David, of course, he sees him as a murderer. To us, we see him as a liar. But the kingdom is, in, in the kingdom, because of who God is and what he's doing, Light, light is part of that. It's part of the kingdom. And when light shows up, it exposes the darkness. Uh, that's why we would even in our service say, God is holy, exposed to the light. We are sinful. Confession. That, that's why we would do that week after week, because exposure to the light unveils to us who we are. This guy, if we're thinking about like a kingdom idea, a kingdom principle is this. Every evil thought and every evil deed is clear. It is open. The light comes in and you would say, oh, I can see that. It, it's not as if God doesn't have that. It's not like God's ability to see it is only if His shutter's working. He sees every bit of it. And that's something you could see. From a kingdom perspective, there's this principle that nothing goes unnoticed. Now you say, good night. What could we do? If that is true, y'all, I, I don't have a great memory of things that, and I'll be like, remember when? I'll be like, no. Remember this? Nope. Remember, and I'm, I'm seriously, because what I'm doing is, for whatever reason, better or worse, like I am throwing those things away. I'm putting them in a, a delete pile. 
And then eventually they're purged, you know, from my memories. It's boom, boom, boom. And there's only a, and I'm going through a ton of information. And so all that stuff's just going delete, 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 delete. And I'm filing the things that I think, okay, I'm going to need that again. But she would remember many more things than me because maybe she's got like several more terabytes of space in her head, you know, to, re to remember it. But, but I think it's just important that we say that everything is exposed. Everything. And you say, ah, what about the stuff that nobody's ever seen? Is that exposed? What about the stuff that I have forgotten about? Is that exposed? What about the fact that like there are things that I don't even know really are sins in my life because I can't see them that well and I'm blinded to them. Are they exposed? Let's say, yeah. And sometimes somebody might look at you and say, murderer. And somebody else might say, he's not a murderer, he's a liar. But the reality is, you are both a murderer and a liar. And it is not hidden. Because guess what? Shutter is open, capturing everything. It's just something you have to know. Even if your memory fails, God's doesn't. What should that leave you to do? Act like it's not true? That'd be a cool thing to do? You know what? Everybody does some bad stuff. Is that what you do? Do you say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to toss the rug up take my, my, my broom, I'm going to sweep it under the rug and put it back down and act like it doesn't exist. Is that what you're going to do? Right now would be the time that you're saying like, what is the hope in this kingdom where nothing, he's blind, he... He never stopped seeing it. What, what could be the hope here if this is how it is, he doesn't somehow turn around and not like Eden, you might say, what if a God, this is a God who actually has eyes in the back of his head? The only hope is that this God who sees everything as it is, who doesn't change over time about what he believes to be sin, has done a, he has made a way to rescue you from it. That's the only hope. The Scripture says to us that we are to turn to Christ, to cling to Him, to trust in His work. That God's wrath over our sin. That is a legitimate, illegi legitimate sins. 
God's wrath over that sin was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ for all who will believe. If we have not trusted in him, then we will be eternally separated from him and left with the memory of our wickedness and judgment forever. Okay, second. Grief is urgent. Now, here, here's the thing. I would have never seen this this way or thought about it at such a level. But in the mid, like the next step to me is, and, and probably to you, is that I see this guy as a murderer of the Lord's anointed. I have been protecting the Lord's anointed all the way through, and I know what needs to happen to this man. And so the next step is I draw the sword and execute him. But there's this total pause. And they go from hearing the news to grief. It's, it's a shocking kind of stop. It's almost like when you're telling a story, maybe of your day, how it was, and this one thing stands out in your mind that that's all you talk about. It's urgent. It's immediate. The, the morning starts immediately. Verses 11 and 12 David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. It's another kingdom principle that is crazy. This is crazy. Are you, are you, this, is, this is insane to me. The first one is... Everything's exposed. The second one is, when you have the right heart towards sin, you grieve it. Have you ever met someone who has so minimized their sin and so enlarged the people's sins around them that... They feel righteous while they look out there and see all these sinners. And I would say, God has the film. God has the film. God has the film. God knows you. God, God sees every aspect, every evil thought, every evil deed. So whether you cover up your stuff or not, God knows you. That's a principle you need to understand. And he sees you clearly more than you see yourself. Even when you're blind, all your blind spots, God sees everything there. And, and, and a heart, a heart like the Lord, what you see so often over and over with the Lord Jesus or even like King David here, is that he mourns over these things. And what I mean by that is this. If you were David and Saul had died, would you rejoice or mourn? I mean, that's... Would you rejoice or would you mourn? Some of you might say, 
good night. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, David had been praying for this guy to get off his back, but there's, you know, all the way through, Lord, rescue me, deliver me. But there is no delight in the death of Saul. There's no delight in the death of Saul. It, it, it's so escalated that it breaks his heart in this moment. It's the way the kingdom works. Have you ever said, I am so tired of what the church looks like. I am so heartbroken over the, heartbroken over the situation that the church finds herself in. I can't believe where it is theologically. I can't believe where this person is theologically. I can't believe they even are able to open their mouth. I can't believe the, the moral failures and the character things. You're just like, this is just... And maybe you feel real comfortable walking around saying like, well, I just... <laughs> well, if it was me... Hmm. That is not like the attitude of those in the kingdom. It, like sitting around thinking like, oh yeah, we know everything. They don't know anything. Or looking at people and being like, well, they're getting what they're, they deserve. You see their declining numbers? They're getting what they deserve. It's not what you see. This type of attitude, if you have that kind of attitude, is like the older brother in the prodigal son's story. They don't want to see the prodigal come home. They don't want to see people right. They don't, they don't want. They, they would rather sit outside when the party is thrown over a sinner coming back home, they would rather sit outside saying, why is he not giving him what he deserves? You know why they would say that? Because they think that the shutter stopped working with them. And they don't see their sin for what it is. You grieve over the sin that entangles your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is true. The sin is exposed to God. That is true. Sometimes it is exposed to us. The response, grief. Not, oh good, I have something else in my book that I can write down about them and think about it. Whenever I feel bad about myself, I'll think about how bad they are. Or I can call my best friend and tell them, you know what I just found out about so-and-so? Third. This is, I mean, these, again, they're really helpful, I think. In, chapter, in verses 13 through 16, David speaks to the young man. Where did you come from? He says, I'm an Amalekite. Which again, David's just been fighting with them. The whole tragedy tied to Saul's life is tied to them. Verse 14, David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? How is it that you aren't afraid 
How is it that you are not fearful? How is it that you, you are not like so... Haven't you been around Israel for long enough? If you've been among the army uh, of the Lord, you've probably heard about what I've... I stayed away from taking vengeance into my own hands. You don't remember that? You ever heard about that? You ever heard about how the kingdom works? Like, there's a sober-mindedness in this kingdom. And that means that you don't do things that or take something in your own hands and say, I will address this myself. There is a fear and an awe with what God is doing. To step into what He is doing as if you are God Himself is a really dangerous place to be. David goes on to say, Go execute this man. And David said, Your blood be on your own head. He is acting as God's means of bringing justice in that moment. And he is saying, man, you have chosen this route and now you are going to be executed. You have walked in this rebellion. Your mouth has testified against you. You've killed the Lord's anointed. You've rejected really God's plan, God's king, God's way. And therefore you are going to get what you deserve. You have flippantly spoken. You have come against God's chosen one. And therefore you will die. Now, again, once you see the exposure of sin, like you see it, it's exposed. The, the narrator and David both help us see we're all in agreement this man, whether I think of him as a murderer or a liar, that's where he is, right? The, the second step when I think about this is just thinking about a principle of the kingdom. When David sees what's happened to Saul, he grieves. He's not happy of the situation. He's broken over the situation. He grieves over likely the whole life of Saul. The, the way it's left the people. And then maybe a third principle you pull out of this, hopefully it could, it could help you, is there is a sobriety when dealing with the Lord. Recently, we had to tell the boys, look, during our family devotion or family worship, like, think of yourself as sitting before the king. Don't, this, this is not the time for you to just like poke at each other, make faces at each other. Like we do that all the time. But this is the time when you're sitting before the king and, and you're wanting to be, to honor the king. A kingdom principle for your life here is it is valuable in your life to live before the fear of the Lord. If you were just looking at this text, you would say, God sees it all. God sees it all. When you see it, it should grieve you. And it should sober you up. 
It should sober you up. You should consider in this moment, as you're looking at this situation, all of these situations, all situations in life, you should live with a sobriety at some level where you say, don't think lightly of God's plans and the way in which he's executing them. Don't mess around. Live sober-minded. Think clearly. Live before the face of God, respecting Him, respecting Him's kingdom, respecting His desires. Show Him respect. Davis mentioned a Polish prince who always carried a picture of his father next to his heart. At certain times, he used to take it out, look at it, and say, let me do nothing unbecoming so excellent a father. That is the way of all kingdom servants should live, controlled by fear, yet grounded in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for a greater understanding greater clarity a greater longing to see and to savor the kingdom to see how it it runs to see how it works we know lord being exposed is frightening seeing ourselves for who we are where we are what's going on exposure is frightening that it does, when we see the horribleness of the nature of humanity and even in the church, the struggles, it, it should grieve us. It should grieve our hearts every week as we even consider our own selves. And we pray in all of that that it would produce a fear that's grounded in love. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand.